Welcome to the Global Connection, a Tel Aviv University podcast. Journey with us as we discover how TAU's academic community and friends are engaging with and helping to shape this ever-changing world. Hi, welcome to the Global Connection. I am your host for today, Dr. Anna Sujeki. And I am excited to be joined by Daphna Hacker, who is a full professor in the Women and Gender Studies program at Tel Aviv University, as well as in the Faculty of Law. Uh, and in addition to that, she is a sociologist. Um, so from my understanding, since you completed your graduate work in legal studies, I, your career has really been dedicated to advancing legal approaches and understanding in relation to feminism, gender, and notions of the family. Um, I know you've authored many, many publications, um, but one of which is a, a book called Legalized Families in the Era of Bordered Globalization uh, from Cambridge University Press. And I know in addition to your academic work, you've also done a lot to contribute to society. Uh, so that includes being a founding member of Itah Ma'aki, a woman lawyer, woman lawyers for social justice, um, as well as even a board member of the um, Israeli Women's Network. And uh, partly why I have you here today is you have a very exciting new position. Uh, you've been elected to the UN Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. Yes, thank you so much for the invitation. I am honored, absolutely honored to have you here. Um, your accomplishments truly are inspiring and thank you. very much looking forward to the conversation. Me too. So I thought I would begin by, um, you know, looking back on, you know, if we go back to even your graduate work. Um, so with your master's, you were focused on a feminist critique of law in Israel. And I feel like that was sort of the beginnings of this trajectory for your career in terms of working on women's rights, working on family rights. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about what inspired this line of work for you? Yeah, I, I can. Um, well, I, I went to law school uh, because both my lawyer, my parents are lawyers. So it was like the natural thing to do. And I had a hard time because I realized that for me, the law book is just the beginning and it's not an end in itself. And I'm, I'm, when I have to just read laws and, and court decisions, I get bored very quickly. So um, I thought, OK, I'll, I'll do a master in education. And this is in fact, what I tried to do, I got accepted and, and started to take some courses. But then I got, uh, by chance, I, I received the brochure from the, the New Israel Fund on their program in the States for human rights lawyers. And I knew that if I will be a lawyer, it will be in human rights. So I went, I applied, I got accepted, and I did my master in, in the States in the human rights program at American University College of Law. And there I got a lot of freedom to really explore what I'm interested in. And my thesis was on the way Israeli law uh, discriminate between single and married women. So the feminist critique was on, on the marriage institution. And through that work, I realized that uh, I'm interested in, in fact, in sociology. So I did my uh, PhD in sociology back at Tel Aviv University. So ever since then, I'm looking at the law as an opportunity to better understand society. Okay, okay. Um, so from early on, then you're looking at discrimination in relation to single women um, and married women um, from the perspective of the law. 
Uh, I feel like that is, that's a challenge that hasn't gone away in terms of the legal framework. We perhaps, I don't know that much about the legal framework in Israel, but I can speak about Canada and about other countries. Um, so uh, would you say that is one of the largest challenges from a women's rights perspective um, when, when you're looking at the law? What, what, are, what are some of the big challenges you've encountered through your career? I think uh, in, in Israel, it's less than a challenge than in, in the sense that most women do get married. It's a very familial and tradition uh, society, traditional society. But my research found that it's not a simple answer. Oh, yes, single women are discriminated against compared to married women. Take, for example, our criminal law related to uh, abortion, which is very relevant to the global discussion today. So if you are single in Israel, you get a permission automatically to get an abortion because you are single. If you are a married woman, you are in trouble. Okay. So paradoxically, married women are punished for playing by the rules. Um, so again, or take the army, for example. If you're married, you can be exempt from service. Is that good or bad for women? So the complex, the, the answers are more complex than, you know, uh, what would you, would you be, uh, what would you expect? Uh, but I think we have, uh, really uh, huge challenges when it comes to family. Uh, first and foremost, family law in Israel, which is unlike any other democratic countries. We are the only country in the world that has dual family law system with civil and religious courts, with civil and religious laws. Uh, so in that sense, Israeli women are subordinated to courts in which they cannot perform as judges which uh, judge them according to very ancient patriarchal laws and norms uh, when it comes, for example, to adultery um, and are at the hands of their husbands when it comes to a divorce, which you know every Jewish woman knows about uh, when she decides or forced to get married religiously. So in Israel, we do not have civil marriage and divorce. It's really um, hard to, to believe. Okay. Okay. Um, Israel is very unique in the way that you have both a civil and religious legal system. Uh, so I can imagine, uh, because you, you work from a global perspective in a lot of the work that you do, that must give you a really interesting lens into also looking at other countries and understanding other countries. So uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the comparative work that you've done? So I did some comparative work in the book that you have mentioned, but I think that now I'm almost overwhelmed by the comparisons I can do thanks to my work at the UN. So I'll just give you an example. We had in the first session I participated in, uh, we heard Bahrain. And in the last one, we heard Iceland. So Iceland is the first in the world in gender equality. And Bahrain, after the, the session we had, issued a statement in which they accept our recommendation to abolish the law that says that if a rapist marry his victim, he will not be charged. So you can understand the, the huge differences around the globe on, on these issues. Okay. Um, so you, you begin at your role with the, the UN uh, Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women in 2023. So it's very, very new, yeah. <laughs> So already you've been working on this case with Bahrain and you, you've seen that progress. Um, 
So I, I might even jump into, because it's so fascinating to me, uh, how many cases have you been looking at already? Each session we, we examined eight countries. So I, I was at two th sessions, so 16. Uh, I was the head of the team on Germany last time. Uh, so that was exciting. It's very intense and you learn a lot in, in each session is three weeks. Uh, we had China, which was amazing. Um, and in a sense, um, challenging because you have this, again, Iceland, the tiny country of 350,000 and China with its, you know, millions and millions and both countries receive five hours of discussion. So there are all these kinds of, you know, weird equality procedures within the UN. But I think it is important because the message is we treat each country the same. Uh, and that's a strong message. Okay. So five hours of discussion per country, per issue. Um, you are joined by 22 other individuals on the committee. Um, so how do you how do you work together in terms of having this discussion um, coming to a point where uh, there are recommendations that are made. Um, can you walk me through that a bit? Yeah, it's a much longer procedure than, than the five hours, of course. Um, weeks in advance, uh, we received the state's responses to the previous committee's questions, which the state uh, receives uh, really a long time ahead. And then we have NGOs input, which is really important with shadow reports. Um, raising issues that the state might want us to not know about. And then we reach, we, we all get together in Geneva. And before these intense five hours, we, we meet with NGOs, delegations um, to hear more. We raise questions with uh, UN organizations that are on the field and can give preliminary input. And then we meet the delegation. Each country has a team of our committee, so we are focused on several countries each. During the session, we cannot master all eight discussions. And during the, this, what is called a dialogue, the team that is responsible for the country um, goes article by article of the convention we are responsible for uh, and ask questions that are based on the empirical knowledge and the concerns that we have heard. Okay. Then we get the answers and we draft the recommendation. We have this internal discussion in the committee on the recommendations. And then they are sent this to the country that can fix, you know, factual errors. And then it's published to the public. Okay. And um, I mean, Bahrain, it, it sounds like an amazing case in which they're taking it very seriously and they are making this change. How often are recommendations taken up by countries? Well, it, the Bahrain case is really an exception in the sense that it was really very quick and, and very clear. There is a huge question of the impact of these UN human rights committees, and my committee is, is one of several. And we know the, the argument that this is a lot of talking with no really enforcement mechanism. But I think it is important. And just to imagine, we, for example, I mentioned China, we had Venezuela, uh, which is in a horrible state. And to think that during these five hours, the public in these countries can hear committee members criticizing the government in a way that their societies are not allowed to criticize. 
I think in itself is very empowering and powerful. Uh, or going back to Venezuela, there was an interesting question about what and sh what should we say about the embargo that the U.S. is leading on Venezuela? Clearly, we do not want to say whether the embargo is justified or not, but we could not ignore the fact that there are no medicines in Venezuela because of the embargo. Do the international community, community has a responsibility when punishing what some state would consider a dictatorship to the most vulnerable in that particular country? So we did mention something about calling the international community to pay attention to the prices paid by women with these kinds of severe sanctions. Okay. So even regardless of the recommendations, then it sounds like the UN is still serving this very, very important role as a space of open democratic discussion that can happen uh, regardless of a country's politics, um, stance on a particular issue. And so equally as important is having that space for open discussion that the public of a country can hear about. And we have to understand that CEDO, my, my, um, the convention that my committee is responsible, is, is signed by almost all the countries of the world, U.S. being one of the exceptions, interestingly. So it's a, it's a constant reminder that, you know, as a, an international community, as a, a globe, as a world, we are committed to human rights. So again, we, we had Hungary, which was very fascinating to me because of the inspiration our leaders currently are, are, are taking from that uh, government. And they explained that, oh, there's no problem with women's rights in Hungary. It's all about family. We don't have a ministry that is responsible for equality for women. It's uh, governed by the ministry to promote family. Uh, so there is a backlash um, and we are aware of it, but we are pushing uh, these kinds of governments to give answers to their public, to, to us, uh, how come uh, all the issues of equality for women are collapsing into this new, you know, back to family values discourse? Mm -hmm. Which uh, that too is, I mean, if we think about some of the contemporary issues uh, that have arisen in relation to women's rights, it does feel like we've kind of have, we have this rise in the Western world anyway of populism and related to that, we also have this backlash against some of the the progress that has been made in relation to to feminism and women's rights. And so is that something that has come to your attention more and more lately? Absolutely. I can go back to my teaching. I have a course on feminism and law that I give at Tel Aviv University for many years now. Um, and, and, and the process is very interesting. At the beginning, I had to explain what feminism is. You know, 20 years ago, very few students knew what it is. Uh, then for, for several years, uh, there was a very fruitful discussions because students became aware and, and engaged and involved and more high schools uh, integrated some knowledge about feminism, although hardly enough. And then there were like a couple of years, oh, do we still need this course? We did this, you know, amazing progress. Maybe we can shift to, I don't know, gender and climate change or gender and um, artificial intelligence, which, which are the cutting edge issues in other countries. But this year, the students 
came with, with eagerness to learn about gender and women's rights because all of a sudden they realized that nothing should be taken for granted and that there are very conservative forces within Israeli society that would want less women in the public sphere, uh, that would want more restriction on abortion, that would not imagine having uh, uh, civil family law and, and, and more and more. So um, the backlash has, has made us realize that this is an ongoing struggle for women's equality and it's been achieved with hard labor and it, it is currently, unfortunately, at risk. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about um, the the image of the handmaid that has been used in protests here. And so my background is I'm Canadian and Margaret Atwood is a Canadian author. And, you know, that was a book originally written in the 1980s. And so for me, it, it's also partly a little bit incredible that between the 1980s and now this image has become so prevalent globally and and here in Israel. And um, it's a reminder of how precarious human rights and women's rights can be. Absolutely. So with the the UN, um, this important role of being this protector of human rights globally, um, for you, what does it mean to be participating uh, in this role right now? First, it means experiencing diversity. Uh, The committee is really diverse. It's the first time that I'm I'm in the same room with women from all over the world, uh, bringing their cultural, their understanding, their way of even negotiation is is something that um, we see that the women uh, from Africa have, have this almost sense of humor within negotiation. Um, I'm learning from uh, women from South America about gender identity because they were the first to recognize it as a legal right. And uh, we have a representative from China, which is interesting, from Cuba. Uh, so really from all over the world. So that's the first thing that I'm experiencing uh, on a very deep understanding that it's no longer only about ideology, it's about methodology. How do we um, talk with each other when we do not uh, agree? How do we approach countries that do what we think are are horrible things but still want to engage and, and mark with them the next step that they are willing to take? So it's a lot of diplomacy, which is new to me. Uh, and I have to learn the language, the manners, um, the conversation. Um, I'm used to a very Israeli, just a, you know, an anecdote. Um, in my family, at least, we, we, we come to dinner, we eat, we go. Um, in, in Geneva, if you don't see for three hours over dinner and conversation is the main thing, then you're rude and you didn't take the opportunity to really learn from each other. So even on that very, um, you know, level. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in a learning process. There's a lot to learn. And after, you know, each of these three weeks, I'm completely exhausted. So um, learning about international law, which in my book I refer to, but it was never part of my expertise. I study Israel, I study Israeli law, and now I have to understand international law more deeply. So a lot of reading, a lot of research, um, understanding myself as another link 
in an institution that has a long tradition, a very developed jurisprudence. I'm not going to invent the will. I'm going to learn about the will that were already invented and developed and slowly see what it is that I can add. Okay. And do you have personal ambitions for, for the work that you hope to accomplish during your time here with the UN? Already I'm, I'm taking upon myself to draft things because in addition to reviewing countries, we can have general recommendation, we can have statements. So I'm involved now in drafting a statement on the upcoming International Girls' Day. So what it is that we want to tell the world in relation to uh, minors uh, and what it is that girls and adolescents are facing now. That So, it, you know, it's very exciting to have all of a sudden this voice that can reach millions all over the world. Okay. And, and with this voice reaching millions uh, all over the world, what would you like to see put in place? And it could be legal, it could be otherwise. Uh, what are some of the most important mechanisms that can help with equal rights for women around the world? I think we have to understand that law is a limited tool. It's crucial, but it's not enough. So the more I know about the law, uh, the more I'm convinced that education is the key. And we have to start with human rights education and feminist education from the very early uh, you know, kindergartens, schools, uh, youth movements, parents and their children, because uh, the law can do so much. Um, and if it's not based on deep cultural understandings and social motivations and even self-identification and identity, um, the law will, will eventually collapse. So um, I think we should broaden the circles that talk about these issues, that learn about these issues, that um, really can imagine a world in which the question whether I was born female or male is not that important. Uh, mm -hmm. And we create this world of freedom in which I explore my options according to my um, um, wishes, my talent, my... Um, um, surroundings, and it's not about sex. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in Canada recently, uh, I think there was a cabinet minister who ended up resigned, uh, resigning. There's a conversation happening in New Brunswick, which is one of the provinces around whether parents should be informed in schools if their child decides to um, choose a gender which is different from what they were assigned uh, essentially or sex that they were assigned at birth um, and and so that has been a you know a, a controversy there recently in terms of how to approach that and this does very much seem like a really really important there are so many questions um, in regards to law in relation to gender um, so, so are you are you working on trans rights as well too right now? So, in in my committee, we include trans women in the definition of women, and we are concerned about their rights and protection. Um, when it comes to children, we are in a dialogue with the CRC, which is the committee that is responsible on the Convention on the Rights of the Child, because we are talking about minors, and I think that uh, based on the um, 
medical uh, knowledge that we already have, and we don't have enough, but the indications we can draw from that, we have to find a way on the one hand to allow children to express themselves, to be accepted as they are, and on the other hand, not to pressure them into any direction. Um, we have um, some uh, empirical evidence that today, unlike in the past, more girls want to switch from F to M. So even that is gendered. Uh, so maybe it's not only, you know, a very authentic, only very authentic motivation, but in some um, circumstances becomes a trend or, um, uh, you know, a, a, even an intuitive uh, realization that it's, it's better to be in a world, it's better to be a boy. So from my social legal perspective, I'm asking questions about the social constructions of identities. Uh, but it's only a beginning of a dialogue. It's a very contested issue. Um, we want to allow country states to do what it is that is right for them. And countries are very different in that, that respect. So it's not how do we uh, craft uh, international law that is uh, coercive for everybody or enforceable everywhere. No. How it is that we walk step by step and really make sure that we are broadening human rights uh, and not diminishing them. Okay. Now, another, um, in relation to women's rights, another obviously global conversation that has been happening is related to the Me Too movement. Um, and for me, what is so interesting from a legal perspective um, is the challenge with sexual assault um, in the courts, in, in a system, I've come from a system where it's innocent until proven guilty. Um, and so there, it's such a large conversation of how, how do you manage when there has been a rape, um, having a trial, uh, when, you know, trauma is involved and the fallibility of memory can be involved, but you're so reliant on evidence. Um, so, so what are some of the conversations happening legally and globally around, around sexual assault? One of the most interesting conversation is moving from consent to will, to desire. Um, so the legal language is narrowing our understanding and imagination in some cases. And I think this is an example because in the law, we do talk about consent. So, you know, young people internalize this concept and think that consent is, is what it is that we're looking at uh, for in sex and no, we should look for two people, sometimes more, um, who really want to do it. Uh, what, what is, you know, the real, uh, a real desire, a real freedom to choose, uh, a, you know, uh, what it is that I have to make sure about my partner before sex is happening, is taking place. These are, again, qu questions that the law cannot answer. It should be answered elsewhere. Again, education and, and a dialogue within, between uh, girls and boys, women and men. I think we do not talk, I mean, on the one hand, sex is all over and it is all that we talk about. But what we are arguing within the feminist movement is that we do not do, we do not conduct the real brave and needed conversations. And one of them is how do I make sure that every, you know, that the whole scenario 
is is really wanted, is really desired by all those that are involved. Okay. Um, and so for you, you are part of the committee until 2026, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, and if I, I might be elected again. It's, it's a very okay. exciting process. You know, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has to campaign for the, um, for the members that, are, um, that want to be elected. So in that sense, you are sent by your country. But once the, uh, the campaign is on, the whole world is, is electing you. So I was chosen by 115 countries. It was such an experience. Okay. And then once you are elected, you no longer represent your country. I'm not a representative of Israel, but it's, uh, you know, we are called independent experts and this is what we are trying uh, to be. So again, I don't know if I would want to run again and if the ministry will, uh, if I do, if the ministry will, will choose me again, which was such a huge privilege. Um, and if chosen by the ministry, whether I will be elected. So there are a lot of ifs. But many committee members in, in all UN committees uh, want to run for more than one uh, period because it takes you so long to really understand what's going on. And they keep joking, you know, you, you become a mature member only <laughs> when right. your period right. is over. <laughs> right. So no two-term limits or anything like that you can keep? In Europe, there, there is a new regulation that they allow their members to be chosen only for two periods. Again. And not all members respect that and not all countries respect that. I think that it's wise, but many of them are there for years. Okay. <laughs> so do you, do you have mentors then from the committee, people who have done it a few times and they're showing oh, you the ropes absolutely. a little bit? I, I know how mentoring is important and now I'm pushing for a more formal uh, mentoring. But when I arrived, there was no such thing. So I adopted one. I know from my academic work that you should adopt one. And, and I did, uh, the member from the Netherlands, she's wonderful. And I, I allow myself to ask her whatever it is that I might be ashamed to ask <laughs> in the broader forum. And she's a great inspiration. Okay. Well, it, it's wonderful work that you're doing. Um, when, when you look back, I, I know you're, you're mid-career and there are many more years, exciting years ahead of you, uh, but when you start to look back and you, you think about the legacy that uh, you want to leave, what would that be? I am starting to look back. <laughs> it's this time of, of my life, you know, where the, the pension is starting to become a, a thing. Um, so, for example, I'm, I'm looking back um, in my recent lectures on my work on divorce and cust child custody. It's been 25 years now, so that's a long period. And I think there are lessons to be learned from my journey um, to what's going on on Israeli politics in general. Because I faced fake news before the term was even there, when divorced fathers' organization claimed that um, divorced fathers are committing suicide by the hundreds because of what's happening in family courts. So I went to the Ministry of Health and I got the raw statistics and I analyzed them and I, I demonstrated that this is fake news. And again, uh, some of them are, are now invited by the Ministry of, of, um, of Security, uh, National Security as, as you know, um, legitimized representatives of, of um, issues uh, like domestic violence. So I think the backlash that we are facing, we, we saw it uh, 
from the beginning. And another example is the hijacking of the, world equal, the word equality. So that's another mechanism that is becoming more, you know, taking a word, a word from the liberal language and just switching it and, and manipulating it. So these fathers argue for equality, which I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in full support of equality within labor division in the family, but let's do it while we are together. Uh, let's build an equal family. And then if we get a divorce, uh, the, the legal arrangement sh should reflect that, but not, you know, um, when we are divorcing and there are already prices to be paid to the children, to the mothers who took primary responsibility, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking back and I'm thinking that um, maybe my role in the world is to say things that others are, are maybe afraid to say. So I'm doing that both in my academic and my activist work. Okay. Professor Hacker, I have to thank you very, very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure.